Welcome to the Filmmaker Mixer Podcast. My name is Andrew, and I'm joined alongside my co-host, Jeff, as always. Today, we have on filmmaker Carolyn Gare. Carolyn talks about her new animated stop-motion feature film, Return to Kellogg, and the team effort behind the scenes to get the film made. Hello, everybody. This is the Filmmaker Mixer Podcast. Our guest today is Carolyn Gare, who is fresh from the Portland Festival of Cinema, Animation, and Technology. And just a reminder to all of you filmmakers working on new projects, uh, the Portland Festival of Cinema, Animation, and Technology will now be opening up submissions for next year's festival, so you don't want to miss out on that. But back to Carolyn. Carolyn Gare is the owner of Bowling for Rhinos Productions in Los Angeles. She's a director, head of story, story artist. She has worked uh, with all of the major studios, um, worked on projects like Jungle Book 2, Brother Bear 2, Despicable Me, and her new project is the stop-motion feature Return to Kellogg. So, uh, Carolyn, welcome to the show. Thank you very, very much. I'm absolutely delighted to be here. This is very exciting. Well, one of the things we always talk about is how our guests got interested in uh, this field. So how did you get interested in animation and storytelling and filmmaking? How did that start for you? It's funny. I listened to a few of your podcasts uh, before we had our podcast. So, and I, I thought, all right, they ask these kind of questions at the beginning. So I really, you know, I was prepared uh, for that. Um, as much as I wanted to be a commercial artist when I was a child, and I was that kid begging for a sketchbook every year ever since I was about five or six years old, I ended up learning basically from redrawing every Mad Magazine, uh, you know, there was <laughs> Sergio Aragonese was my favorite. Um, and it was pretty clear when I was in my teens that I really wasn't, you know, going to be a, a commercial artist. My girlfriend was going on to paint sailboats for people for money, and I'm still drawing cartoons. Uh, and I ended up, because I was living in Toronto at the time, uh, Sheridan College is uh, like a 15-minute drive from me. It's the only place in all of Canada that teaches animation. Uh, the other really great school that everybody knows about is CalArts, which is here in California, but you pretty much have to be American and uh, to, to be able to get in. So I was incredibly uh, lucky to be in the right place at the right time. And I took three years of classical animation, got a degree, and then spent two years trying to figure out how to get a job because we were taught by national film board teachers who could teach you how to make a film if somebody else was paying for it, but they didn't work in the industry. So we didn't know, we knew how to make a film from beginning to end, but a lot of the students didn't know how to actually get jobs to be cogs in that wheel. We just knew how to be the entire machine. So, you know, we eventually figured out how to be in-betweeners and cleanup artists and cell painters and editors and sound assistants and eventually animators. Um, I ended up in Los Angeles as character layout for a uh, character designer for Deke and then a character layout artist and quickly a board artist for Warner Brothers way back in the day on Animaniacs and uh, Tiny Tones and just about everything Warner Brothers did for about 10 years. Um, went on to the features and, and then sometime around 2014, I just started playing around with stop motion because, you know, if you're going to animate Monday to Friday, nine to five, why not animate in all your free time and on the evenings as well? So I started experimenting with it for Instagram. And then after getting about 60,000 followers, I thought, shoot, I should just make a film. You know, what's the difference between 15 seconds and 82 minutes? So it only took me four years, but, uh, that's. That's sort of how I got here. So was it your love of drawing early on that drew you to the uh, animation medium or was there some other inciting incident? It was my love of drawing, but also my love of the ridiculous. Like I was a huge fan of Warner Brothers cartoons, which I'm sure everybody is. 
But I really appreciated uh, the timing of the cartoons. In some cases, you'd see, you know, if a cat was, or a dog was eating its food really, really fast, at one point on the screen, it'd be like eight heads to that dog because it was eating so fast and rigorously. So when I got into uh, the first year animation, a friend and I, w- and I would rent 16 millimeter projectors on the weekend, borrow films from the uh, animation library, and watch these things frame by frame. I think it was the fascination with dissecting what it was that I loved about the cartoons. It's a, imagine if you really love food, you want to learn how to make it, you end up becoming a chef. So for me, it was the fascination of what made these cartoons so appealing. Plus, I loved the fact that they were a little more, uh, they appealed to adults. I didn't understand some of the jokes, which I also really love. Um, <laughs> and so I, I really developed a very strong Warner Brothers style because of it. So even when I was working at Disney, people would refer to me as the the guy that draws like Warner Brothers, and people would have to also remind them, no, it's a girl that's drawing that stuff. Not that it made a difference, but it was always really funny to me. Somebody once told me I draw like a guy, and uh, even though it's an odd compliment, I knew what they meant, and it was uh, I was very flattered by it. Well, I'm curious, were there other animators that that influenced you? I mean, there's so many great, God, so many great animations and so many great animators. You know, Saul Bass and and like you said, Chuck Jones and and people like that. What were there other animators that influenced your style? Uh, yes, very much so. I would say uh, not just Chuck Jones and Art Babbitt and a lot of the Warner Brothers uh, animators. It was also um, the early the early inventors of animation like Tex Avery, oh, uh, wow. who did uh, Swing Ship, Cinderella, Red Hot Riding Hood. You know, if you've seen The Wolf, uh, you know, and and Droopy um, in cartoons, you've seen Tex Avery's work, and he has a sense of ridiculous. That's above and beyond what the Bugs Bunny cartoons did. And, you know, I was never a big fan of Disney stuff because it always seemed like it was being too safe and too polite. But I loved Tex Avery's ability to stretch out a limousine so it's almost three miles long and a sign (laughs) up in the middle of it and says, long, isn't it? You know, (laughs) (laughs) or, or, you know, they made parodies of, you know, the shooting Dan McGrew. And and, um, I love Tex Avery so much. I actually named my son uh, after him. My uh, Fred Bean Avery is uh, Tex Avery's real name. And I named my son um, Avery Bean Taylor because uh, not only was Tex born in Taylor, Texas, but he's also related to Judge Roy Bain, which my son is too. Uh, so it, it was kind of cool. I took my love of animation and named one of my kids after it. <laughs> oh, that's funny. I was just driving through Taylor the other day on a location scout. Uh, out, no kidding. Uh, yeah, I'm in I'm in Austin, and we are we're going out to Cameron, Texas, and uh, we were kind of going through the countryside. Um, but that's that's a weird coincidence. Well, you know, tell us about your new film. Can you give us an overview of the project and and maybe what inspired you to make it? I can. I am from Canada. As I mentioned earlier, I grew up in Toronto and ended up, I've been here exactly one year longer than I ever lived in Canada. So uh, that was an odd year when I realized, you know, it's having your foot on the other side of the border, but I made my home here and my career here in Los Angeles. But when I started to write the feature and a lot of the characters in my feature are actually based uh, on some of the small characters that I played around with with stop motion. Like the three bunnies, the three alien bunnies, which are called the space bunnies, were one of the first things that I ever did stop motion with. And I think I've probably done about 15 or 20 little 15 second shorts for Instagram with the space bunnies. So they're in there, the penguins in there, there's a few other characters like Cheese Man. And um, I had originally set it in um, Idaho. And the the reason I called the town Kellogg is actually based on a piece of found object that I had. Uh, it was just a return label that says, 
after five days, please return to Effie Kellogg, you know, Alan Nebraska. <laughs> and I just thought uh, it was the very first thing I ever animated. And so I named that particular piece of found object Return to Kellogg. And so making the film called Return to Kellogg uh, really has been the title of it since about two, since I first had the idea in about 2016. I'd originally had it set in the United States, but as I, as I finished my first draft of the script, I've realized I have way more jokes about Canada. I have way more heartfelt <laughs> references. I, you know, we're self-deprecating and apologetic, we Canadians, but also um, I think there's a sense of self that we are able to laugh at instead of just apologizing for things. And then suddenly there were poutine jokes, hockey players, uh, Lewis sightings, um, and pine trees everywhere. And it's it's really funny when uh, I, I did actually drive up to uh Kellogg, Idaho, to take a look at the town before I started designing my town. And I was surprised to see that it really was a mining town that had seen better times. And so when I decided to set it in Canada, I actually set it near Tomogamy, which is just above North Bay, which is where my pa my family has had um, a cabin in the woods for uh, almost 100 years now. Um, and we go up every summer to Tomogamy, and it is kind of a sailing uh, uh, mining town and logging town that's seen better days. Um, and then suddenly everything just sort of galvanized in my mind. And so it was really interesting during COVID to be making uh, a film about a small town in Canada when I couldn't go home and visit my small town in Canada. It became more and more emotional for me. So the film idea itself, which was your original question, and I'm sorry because I will wax poetic about just about anything that has to do with this, like my hometown. <laughs> <laughs> um, it is kind of a metaphor actually for myself. It's uh, about a very small town that everybody has left to go to greener pastures. The, the policeman goes to Finland looking for Universal's health care, and uh, a couple of the characters have gone down to the United States to have their career. The rancher has moved away because he needs bigger fields. Everybody's moved away from this small town in Canada. We don't see that. I mean, we know that that's what happened because it talks about it in the film, but this film starts off with uh, the last remaining citizens of Kellogg find out that a um, uh, a highway is going to bypass their small town and unless they have enough people for the consensus taker uh, they will be bypassed and turn into a backwater town that will be forgotten forever and the town will die so Maurice, the mayor of the town sends for all the expatriates to come home for the head count a little come to Jesus actually you know, a little, it's, it's not, not a Bethlehem story but you know that's what why Mary and Joseph were going back to, to Jerusalem was for a head count for census taking and stuff like that um, so they all go back to town and they get, you know, they do a head count, um, but there's been a typo on the notice and it turns out they don't qualify. So it turns into an elaborate heist after that, where they're basically trying to play pranks, steal the blueprints and, and recreate an exit ramp on their own, battling it out with the, uh, the foreman who is the, uh, the villain of the piece, even though he's not really that much of a, an antagonist, he's just the, the hurdle that they have to overcome. And they're successful. They get tourists start coming into town. And rather than leaving town again, all of the expatriates decide to stay. And the reason why I say this is a metaphor for me is because I left Canada for the United States, for Los Angeles, to make my career. But I've been getting progressively more and more homesick. So to be able to make this film and use um, friends and family, people that I hired, voice artists from Canada, that during COVID, during the lockdown, I was really surrounded with Canadian voices, 
Canadian trees, even if they were only two inches high, and I held them in my hand because, you know, I've got kind of a an O-scale town, so my biggest tree is only about eight inches tall instead of 80 feet tall. Um, I was basically recreating Canada in my garage during COVID uh, by myself, but also s- surrounded by, like I said, voices of, of all of my voice actors that were all very Canadian, and I would animate to their voice track. And it was just an incredibly emotional emotionally satisfying project. So to be able to have it finished and share with my family rather than sell it to a studio um, has been a really huge accomplishment for me. It became a milestone in my life rather than just a money-making venue, which I think is what I had in mind in the first place. So staying on animation, you know, animation allows for endless creativity, but storytelling remains pivotal. I'm curious, how do you strike a balance between pushing creative boundaries and ensuring your narrative resonates with the audience at the same time? Oh, that's a good question. And it is definitely something that has been the guardrails of my entire career. Um, A lot of the time it's bouncing ideas off of other people. Just because I think it's funny doesn't mean everybody else thinks it's funny. So uh, I had a table read and, and, you know, I saw what people were reacting to and and, um, what, what they really liked about it and what wasn't actually landing in terms of jokes. And I have a really great producer who's my boyfriend. Um, he just became more and more involved in the in the process. So we would spend a lot of time walking the dog and going on road trips and things like that and, and bouncing back ideas um, for the movie. Um, but at the same time, when I've worked on animated features as either a story artist, head of story, or director, I find that the best ideas actually come from the room and the good ideas belong to the film. So uh, I've worked with people who really want their ideas heard, um, but that's not really how you make a film. You make a film when when you get ideas that you weren't expecting. And it's really like building a cloud out of thin air, but it takes more than one person. I think one person can write a novel and I'm sure there's really talented um, playwrights and screenwriters out there who can write all the voices of the characters in, in, in a script. I find it's a lot easier to find some of the inspiration from either other story artists, other friends, just bouncing it around, getting people's feedback. Um, I find I'm much more collaborative than I am sort of a, a single-handed uh, creator. But you know, that said, it's really it was really fun actually going from working with a ten people story crew to being the entire story crew. I storyboarded this, I wrote the script myself. And I was the only one animating on the entire project, but I oh, had wow. a DP, uh, award-winning um, uh, director of photography. That's what a DP is. So he's the award-winning director of photography. Uh, he's from Germany. His name is Jonas Schubach. And I found him on Mandy.com after somebody saw some of my animation and said, you really need to get somebody who can light this better than you are doing it so that it really brings the film to life. Um, and he had some really good input too, just with the visuals and things like that. So I really appreciate the people who who gave me some creative feedback. Um, but I, I would say in general, a, a lot of the reason why some of the stuff is successful is also because I had kids uh, who've always given me feedback and I've watched what they like. So I think keeping an open mind and finding out what audiences like, you know, whether or not they, they like Terry Gilling movies or the American office, uh, everybody has their own taste, but I, I say keeping an open mind and an ear to the ground is, is probably one of the best pieces of advice I can give people. Well, I'm curious, there are so many different styles of animation and even within those styles, you know, there are different ways you can tackle it. And, and is it possible for you to unpack a little bit about 
I, I wish, I, I guess what I'm asking is, can you describe your workspace, how you set up the animation, you know, how, you know, how much time it took to do a given scene or a given move? Um, is it possible to kind of visualize that for us? Because I know a lot of people who, <laughs> I, I know it's a, it's kind of a big question, I guess, but a lot of uh, our listeners who are into animation, we did a, an episode on animation a while back and we got a lot of questions uh, from, from young filmmakers saying, you know, what is it? physically look like? How do I set up my camera? What do I do? And I'm curious if you can just enlighten us a little bit on that. It's it's funny, you know, I just did, a, I was a guest speaker for a Spanish art class about a month ago. So we did like a two and a half hour Zoom. And then the fun part was being able to give them homework so that I could at least see and talk about the visuals. Because talking about stop motion without having visuals, like I'm staring at the poster of my film right now, and I immediately want to point out with my cursor how big everything is and how many characters and all that. But describing stop motion is is a very interesting <laughs> challenge. Um, and in fact, uh, I'm going to Bosnia at the end of the month. I've been invited, you know, all expense paid kind of thing to the Bosnia Film Festival. It's called NAF, uh, National, I don't know what it stands for. Oh, Annoim Animation Film Festival. It's in Bosnia. Um, and they want me to give an hour lecture on stop motion. And I realized the only way I can do that is I have to film myself making stop motion because I can't bring my setup with me. You know, it is such a sure. thing. It's like talking about dance when it's so easy just to stand up and spin. <laughs> so um, my stop motion, there's many different ways of doing stop motion. There's claymation, which I think everybody's seen with Wallace and Gromit. Right, right. There is raked animation, and that it would be more Nightmare Before Christmas. And what, is, what does that mean? What, uh, I haven't heard that term, sure. term uh, rigged animation. What does that mean? Um, it means a character has uh, um, an anatomy. It's got wires inside of it. I'm sure oh. I'm not the right term. But it means their arms bend. They're articulated, actually. And I think articulated is a better word for it, but I just say rigged or rigging. Um, don't know why. Again, I'm probably using the wrong terminology. So no, we'll that makes sense, though. That, or we'll yeah, that articulated, sense. which is more like Nightmare Before Christmas. You get to see, um, I forget the name, the name characters, Jack, Jack Skellington. Um, he, his arms and legs move, his arm bends, his hand waves, his eyes move around. Well, he doesn't have eyes, but you know what I mean. Um, his knees, he walks, and and all that. That's an articulated. They have a a, 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 a wire uh, anatomy inside the, uh, the the plastic arms and legs and head and cl clothing and all that, so that it uh, it moves around and, and has very human um, activity. Claymation is more molding the clay, um, and then there's um, collage um animation which is just paper that you fill with a camera paint pointing down at us more like what terry gilliam does for monty python a lot of paper cutout stuff um my form of uh stop motion is i don't know if you've seen the project or if anyone listening wants to take a look at it on youtube isn't that funny i can't even say a link in my voice wouldn't that be cool <laughs> <laughs> look on the link in this next sentence um <laughs> it's called a town called panic uh, in French, it's called Pentacle Village, and they used toys. They made the film back, I think, in 2004. I fell in love with it when I saw it. It actually got uh, official selection at both Fantastic Fest in, in Texas, as well as the Cannes Film Festival, the really big one. So, I mean, hats off to these guys. And they did a whole series as well. And that's called replacement animation. And that's what Return to Kellogg is. I basically have uh, for instance, one of my hockey players is in a hockey playing pose. He only has that one pose, but the way he skates around on the ice, 
It really looks like he's playing hockey. And when you look at hockey players anyway, they basically just are always bent over a stick um, skating around or they're shooting it. And I have the puck shooting all over the place. So they only have one pose each. Um, whereas Maurice, the penguin, who is the mayor of town, has uh, eight different poses with his hands up, his arms out, his hands at his side, his hands his hands akimbo, which means out on either side like a T-shape. Um, Dr. Louisville has a series of different poses. And I took plastic figures uh, that had different poses. These are just, you know, they, the plastic cast, just all one color. And I cut arms off, I cut legs off, I repositioned them, um, I cut their heads and moved the heads around so that they were in poses that I could use for animation. So when Dr. Louisville talks, he's very animated, he can lean down and pick stuff up, but only because I have a pose with him grabbing something off the ground. And then I will replace that pose with him starting to stand up, and then the final pose, which, him, which would be him standing with his arms by his side. So he's got about 10 different poses. So when I'm when I animate the characters, I use a, a program called Dragon Frame, um, which I bought for about, I think it's about $400. But the cool thing about it is uh, four years later, I don't have to have another license. It's just basically the program that I use. Unlike, say, uh, Photoshop, that you have to pay for monthly and eventually, you know, the, the software changes. But with Dragon Frame, it basically just talks between my laptop and my um, SLR camera, and I can play back what I've animated. So in the course oh, of day, I'm in my garage, I've got a big flat table. I've got a bunch of lights leaning over it, a 1K and a couple of spotlights. And then something's got a big paper lampshade on it called a China Ball. And um, so that it casts light, I've got one that acts as the sun and then a few that sort of act as what we call source lighting. So if I have a lamp that's sitting on the lobby desk, the lamp has a tiny wire leading behind the set. And the lamp is actually on. If you ever see a movie or a TV show and it's and you see a lamp on inside the set instead of just coming from the ceiling that you don't see, that's called source lighting. So I have a big flat table, a, a bunch of props, the backgrounds, which I painted. And uh, then I just put the character down. I take one, sh one frame of them. And then I'll move it a little bit, take another frame, move it a little bit, take another frame, and continue it until it looks like it's walking across the floor. And then I play it back at 12 frames a second or 24 frames a second. I guess they call it in photography. Um, the frame rate we call is 12 frames a second. And then, you know, without my hand there, it uh, and I play it back. It looks like it's walking because I've wobbled it a little bit as it, it goes from point A to point B. Um, I don't know if I answered your question completely. No, no, you did. And, and I, I uh, actually have a follow-up on that um, because you mentioned earlier finding your DP that you used. How does a DP work in regards to animation? I think we've all seen, you know, YouTube videos of DPs working on live action features and how they lie to scene and do things like that. How does it work with animation? That's a fantastic question. I mean, look at Wes Anderson. I don't know if everybody has seen Isle of Dogs or uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox. Wes Anderson had an idea. He wanted to to make it stop motion. Wes Anderson doesn't exactly anim doesn't animate himself, but he hires a bunch of people who do. He hires people who made the sets. So um, I made all the sets. I made all the characters. I made some poses and characters out of Sculpey. I repainted, repurposed, um, wrote it, storyboarded it. But the one thing and animated all eighty two seconds. I mean, <laughs> eighty two seconds, all eighty two minutes. The one thing I could not do is light it properly. I had two copy lamps and it really just looks like I shot it in my living room. I actually animated, uh, I think, nine minutes of animation. And uh, at first, the very first, about you know, four, four years ago. 
And I ended up, I had a trip to New York and um, I had reached out to a guy who ran a stop motion, a, a commercial studio there. They primarily did stop motion and I wanted to see their setup. Um, we met for coffee, gave me a tour of his studio, which didn't look that different from my garage. So that was really nice. But he had way more elaborate lighting and he took a look at my um, my animation and he said, you know what, you put so much time and effort into the characters, into the sets, into the animation. He says, but it really looks very amateurish. Uh, I think he said it very polite terms. I'm just going to paraphrase him because it really did look amateurish in hindsight uh, when I look back at it now. He says, what you want to do is get a DP. And I had to say, what is a DP? And he says, it's a director of photography. He says, you're trying to wear too many hats, get a DP. So I get on the plane, I get home, I'm working at Paramount at the time on an animated feature called Rumble, and uh, it's CG animation, you know, so it's all done on the computer. So I went up to the DP on that film, who was uh, basically lighting everything, you know, digitally, but it still has to be selected and lit. And I'll get to your question in a second. And I, I asked him, I said, how do I find a DP? And you know what, I actually, it was so great that this guy in New York told me to get one, and this this the DP on Rumble told me how. He said, go on Mandy.com. It's a website. It's like the Craigslist for filmmakers. You can find somebody to work for you an hour at a time. You can negotiate prices. You can tell them it's an independent project, but you can get people who will help you out and, and it's not going to rip a, a hole in your bank account. So I posted an ad thinking no one would answer it. Two days later, I had 23 different people wanting to apply for the job. Oh, wow. All of their reels, and some of them had lighting that looked exactly like mine, very amateurish, but people who wanted to get into the business. And then I saw Jonas Shoebox, and he just finished doing um, a short film that had won a few awards, and the lighting is impeccable. So, I mean, when you see a movie and you see golden light streaming in through a window and it's supposed to be morning, even though they're on a sound stage and it's just a, a, a 2K with a gel over it um, and a little bee smoke so that it looks like dust in the air. The lighting was so above and beyond anything else that I was seeing from any of the other applicants. I, I reached out to him, and uh, he was this great uh, German DP who went to school in in um, here in the states, um, and had been on several projects, and is looking to be, um, you know, he's, he's looking to find a, a director to eventually become famous like me, and then he could be my DP. <laughs> <laughs> but the, he, he came in and took a look at my studio, and he says, yeah, we need all new equipment. We can't shoot this with copy lights. Those are going to burn out. We're going to have inconsistent lighting. And also, it's kind of it's kind of blue. It looks very amateurish. So, you know, and I spent, you know, about $1,000 on C-stands, um, gels, which are the colored see-through plastic sheet that you put over lights to create different times of day, different moods. Um, and a bunch of different lights and uh, some spotlights, some mirrors to redirect light, um, and a bunch of something that's called a flag, which is a big wireframe that you can tape uh, something that looks like wax paper, um, which is a diffuser. I think they call it an N95 or something like that. I'm sure he's going to listen to this and cringe. Um, <laughs> but it, it filters light. So you can have one main light source like the sun at, at the, with the long, lovely shadows. But also you need fill light to so that the parts that don't have the light shining on them don't disappear into blackness. So we had all these really big white boards called uh, bounce bounce cards, and we would position them in, in angles uh, that are just off, off of the camera, and they actually reflect light back in. And we get this in, in, day, in natural lighting anyway, because the sun is so strong, there's bounce lights everywhere. You're going to get a, 
the wall is lit up because there's a car park nearby, that kind of a thing. Or a white building will light up the building next to it because it is actually reflecting the light and, and, and the sunlight just fills everything. Whereas with a, a 2K or a 1K light, one single source of light will not light everything. So we had to find little ways of, of uh, spreading the light around. But we also use black cards as well, which are called negative fill in places where if I had um, a, a, the postman's truck is white, and in some cases it was too white, it would blow out the camera a little bit, even though everything else was lit up really nicely. And we would position that in such a way that it would reflect uh, blackness and take away any any bounce light from it so it wouldn't be so bright. So Jonas is sort of um, a magician when it comes to light. He'd never done stop motion before. So he was actually kind of delighted to play God He's like, oh my gosh, it's like I could put the sun wherever I want. He, he doesn't have a, he's not shooting, he's used to shooting live action, you know, like in the real world with the sun, but they also also use indoor shots with um, alternative lighting as well. But um, even when you see people on photo shoots outside with the sun, they still have all these big giant reflectors and things like that so that you fill in the light on the person's face that so they don't have a hard shadow there from the sun that I'm sure we see in photographs on family vacations, you know, if you you stand in too bright a sunlight, you know, half the face is in shadow. So um, it was fun for Jonas. We shot nighttime stuff, sunrises, sunsets. He really got into it. He was he was like, what if it just finished raining? What if it's slightly clouding over? I mean, he really wanted to play with with every uh, every lighting situation there was because he, he was uh, so delighted by it. So during COVID, he actually got a job shooting stop motion for some German toy companies because he'd already had experience doing it with me. The other thing that Jonas did too is is because a lot of the signs um, on the exterior streets and some of my sets are actually made with printout, um, uh, like they're not neon signs, but they're a print of a neon sign. And Matt, even though they're a hundred pound cardstock, he he was able to light them in such a way that they don't reflect the paper back to camera. He's oh, able wow. to angle the light. So that's the other thing. Not only just filling this the scene with light. He also knows how not to make it look like toys so that my forest looks like a forest and my main street really looks like the camera is down on a street that is scale size. So and there are things that he can do that I don't really know how to explain, but he's really a, uh, he's just a wizard with making the, the town come to light. So I mean to life. So I, I mean that if, if anybody was going to, uh, you know, foray into making any kind of stop motion, um, good lighting is is a real must, uh, and, and I, I he added like a hundred percent, hundred and twenty percent value to the production quality because of his ability to light it to make it look real and not like toys. And he also knew where to put the camera. That's the other thing a director. So I'm sorry, I'm like it's a two part question. In stop motion, it's a lot more about the lighting. In live action, Jonas also knows where to put the camera to get the most emotional impact. But because this is stop motion, we didn't have, I, I mostly knew where I wanted to put the camera because I'd storyboarded it. So there's uh, a lot less variety in that in that respect, but he was really great at helping me get the shots that I wanted to get. Oh, I'm curious about the workflow with Jonas. Is it something with stop motion where he would light a scene and leave you for a given amount of time to to shoot that scene and then come back to do the next one or like how how was the day-to-day -day collaboration process with him that is a fantastic question we actually found two workflows uh the one that we did at the beginning 
was he would, I, we worked every Saturday, you know, I had a full-time job, so I'm juggling a day job as well as trying to make this crazy side project, passion project of mine. So he would come on a Saturday. We, I would already have the set ready, but we would spend about two hours set dressing it, moving the camera, setting up the lights, moving things around just so that, so that it wasn't just me making the set and then walking away. We would really literally work for two, sometimes four hours, setting it all up. Like if it was a forest floor, once we put the camera and put up the lights, we realized there were a few bare spots, a few shadows that were, uh, you know, we, we wanted to break up. We'd move the trees around so they would catch the light just right. He, it was his idea to sprinkle chili peppers on the, the, the velvet. I had like green velvet, um, uh, for the grass, um, uh, and, and we would sprinkle little bits and pieces of herbs and chili peppers on the grass so it looked like leaves had fallen and tiny twigs from outside. Um, and then he was like, go outside, see if you can find a, yeah, a broken tree branch. And I'd be in the backyard finding a tiny twi- twig, but we put it down on the grass next to the tree and now it looks like a tree stump. Because the amazing thing about <laughs> nature is everything in nature can be any size. I could find the tiniest leaves and I could find the tiniest sticks that look like branches from a small tree or bigger twigs that look like branches from a pine tree. So nature is really amazing that way. Um, so we would work together like that. Well, so I'd be, I would be set dressing and, and tidying up all the corners. Oh my gosh, we ran out of sky on one side. I'll put a couple of trees there, that kind of thing. Um, and then he would have it all lit. And then he would leave for the day and I would stop. I would start uh, shooting, and if I had to go in, you know, uh, o- over the course of the week to do a uh, close-up or something like that, I would change the camera. Um, and that's what we did before COVID. During COVID, he got stuck in Germany for two years because oh, wow. of being, uh, well, there was no travel rest- the travel restrictions. So for two years, I actually ended up making all of the rest of the sets and radio plays. Um, and by radio play, I mean, I had to not only write the lines for each character, but I had to organize the recording of everyone. Um, and I can talk a little bit about that uh, later because it's also a really interesting process. So for two years, I really made every other giant set there was to make, including every building in the town. So when he was finally able to come back, instead of shooting every Saturday, he's now decided to stay living in Germany because he's, he's continued his career there. Um, and he wants to be close to his parents. So he came back for seven weeks. He and his girlfriend came back. Uh, his car lives permanently in my driveway. I mean, <laughs> how close we've become as friends. He came and stayed in my guest room for seven straight weeks. And we shot as we shot half of the film in seven weeks. Oh, wow. Um, I mean, we that, had- that seems that sounds fast for animation. But I, I you tell me, is that? That seems fast, but maybe it's not. I don't know. We we shot maybe fifteen percent, so maybe we shot maybe what it was is we, like we shot the other thirty five percent, thirty five forty percent of the film. It was it was intense. Um, but wow. the thing is, with the opening scenes, the reason they took for so long, a lot of the opening scenes are one off locations, and there were thirty different one off locations. So each set that I made, which took me about two weeks to make. We'd only use it for why, you know, for uh, you know, like maybe three or four days of shooting. Whereas uh, once we get into the story, we get into the town. A lot of the locations had fifty to sixty different um, scenes set in that, so we were reusing a lot of uh, locations after the after everybody comes to town. We sort of animate all the characters in the same locations. 
Um, but they were really big sets to make. So when he came back and we shot straight for seven weeks, we would get up at 6 a.m., set up, set the lighting, um, do the set dressing, and then he would leave and sit down at the table. He had some lectures that he was doing online and some work for another gig that was coming up, so he'd be doing location scouting online. Uh, while I would go into the garage, into the studio, and shoot. And then after about four hours, I would come in and say, okay, I'm ready for a close-up for this. He'd come in, move the camera, go back and sit down at the dining room table. I'd go back and shoot. So I was basically shooting, um, you know, 16 hours a day for seven straight weeks. That's why we got wow. so much accomplished because I knew he had a he had a hard out of, of you know, seven weeks later, they had a plane ride back and he right. had a, another project he had to get onto. Um, so we were working at a really intense production schedule. At this point, um, I did not have a full-time job. I decided to spend the entire year finishing my film. So that's all I was doing was just shooting the film and animating it. And, and it was great to have him here, you know, because I could just text him and say, ah, darn it, I knocked over a light or I bumped something. He'd come in and fix it. So he was uh, having him as tech support as well as being able to light the next set instead of waiting a week was fantastic. We solved a few problems. Sometimes the light would burn out. And if uh, he wasn't working, if he wasn't actually living in my house, I'd have to wait another week for him to come back to replace it. So um, we got most of the film shot that way. And then at the end of the uh, the summer, he came back for another uh, another six weeks and we were able to finish the film in, in that amount of time. Now, in the meantime, there were a few smaller scenes that actually my producer and I shot together we had Jonas on FaceTime. Uh, we called it the Jonas 3000. I would put my iPad on a couple of boxes on a rolling table and have him pointed at the set. And then he would also take over my laptop so that he could control the camera from the laptop. And then he would just basically try to tell us how to move stuff around. So Ron and I are, he was like, can you move the China ball 30 degrees? And we're like, which one's the China ball? You know, move the <laughs> Do you have a cardellini or a gobo arm? And I'm like, which one is the cardellini? Which one's the gobo arm? You mean the silver shiny thing that looks like a clamp? You mean so it was very really hilarious at first when during COVID we're trying to shoot a few things here and there. Um, and he's it's, I really felt like, you know, I got my young whippersnapper grandson on the line and we're two old fogies, you know, and watch the sea staring on where do we put <laughs> banging into each other and what what flag? What's an NP3? So he asked me for a C-47 at one point. I'm like, what the heck is a C-47? <laughs> and the C-47 is a close, you know, the uh, clothesline <laughs> clip. What do you call them? Um, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, close, close, uh, yeah, clothespin. Clothespin, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> it's a clothespin. And and um, director of photography and everybody in the lighting department, they use so many of them because they're always clipping uh, gels and gauze and and uh like i said the diffusing paper over top of lights constantly they're on 80 percent of the equipment will have at least three or four clothespins on it in live action shooting as well as stop motion and producers would take a look at the list of expenses and wonder why they're spending so much on clothespins so one production renamed them c47s so that the producer didn't ask what they were because they thought they were technical <laughs> enough so a c47 is a clothes fit uh, we we used tons and tons and tons of them. So um, it was just really great to have him either on, you know, over, over digitally, you know, overlooking our production or actually in, per in person shooting. And, and that's how we finished the film uh, was just intense every single day. But having him as tech support um, to adjust things 
at one point I did a pan between uh, one character and another, and he came in and laughed and he called it an illegal pan because really that w- would be something that he would have preferred to have done. Move, move the can do all the camera moves, but I didn't want to fall through it again. It was 11 o'clock at night. <laughs> so. Oh, that's funny. Well, it sounds like you had a great experience working with your team and and coming up with a a passion project that uh, kind of was was satisfying both creatively and emotionally, and, and I think that's awesome. Um, what are you up to next? Uh, well, um, just this morning, I was emailing a script to one of my voices. Uh, because we have the writer's strike and the actor's strike going on right now, and I fully support them, I mean, what studios are trying to do with AI is terrifying. I actually have living with me at the moment. I'm I'm like the uh, I'm like the filmmakers hotel here. My my kids have moved <laughs> out, so I've got a couple of extra rooms. So uh, a friend of mine is up from Massachusetts shooting um, uh, Friday the Thirteenth um, film uh, fan film uh, called Never Hike Alone Two. It's his third one. And <laughs> so I've got actually a disembodied corpses in my garage because they're props for the dead bodies in, in this film. So it's really funny to have my stop motion toys and adorable sets set up in the garage. And over to the other side, there are plastic machetes and axes with fake blood on them and uh, a couple of uh, Jason Voorhees uh, uh, fake bodies. So it's been kind of hilarious and fun. Um, so what was I talking? Oh, and he's the one who's been telling me, you know, what AI will do to actors and, and writers if, if the studios can get away with it. So I'm very much uh, a supporter of the strike, but it's also leaving me very unemployed. So at the moment, um, I'm, I've decided I've got all the sets, all the characters. I'm making a TV pilot for Return to Kellogg and I'm oh, nice. a TV series. My overhead is almost zero at the at this point because I've already spent all the money on all the sets, the lights, the equipment, everything. I have it all. I don't have to create a you know a brand new set of characters to make a TV pilot. They're they're made. So I'm hoping you know I'm hoping to sell the film and have it become at least a bit of a a, a cult classic. You know, I guess that's probably everybody's desire. But it is it's such a quirky, fun film, and we find ourselves quoting it all the time. It, it's it really. We, we got also, you know, such great fan feedback. I mean, audience feedback from uh, people at the uh, the Portland Festival. It was a lot of, it's very family friendly. We bleeped over any swear words that we had in it. And I actually re-recorded uh, one of my um, one of my actors so that he says, gosh darn it. Um, so I, re- I really wanted to make it family friendly as well. So kids really, really liked it. The adults really liked it. And Scott, you know, I'm an adult, so I'm not dumbing it down. Um, so I thought, what the heck? You know, I'll, I'll, uh, I've already got it all. Jonas had just Jonas was just here for another month. Um, he just uh, Jonas was here for last month, all of last month, living with me as well. So I've got one filmmaker, and then I've got a DP in another room. He was shooting a live <laughs> action gig, but on his days off, I made him light pro- something for me. We he helped me light, and we shot um, a seven minute short animated film um that's completely different from cartoon stuff that i do it's much more artistic and so we now have a a film to enter into uh next year's film festival um i also have a two-minute short that's very much the same kind of an art piece that is in this year's film festivals as well which is the reason why we're going to bosnia and it's also the reason why we went to portugal earlier this year and it's it's gotten about 20, 25 laurels at this point. It's been doing really, really well. It's just a two-minute short. But again, it's got no 
it's it's found objects, non-binary found objects that tell a story with emotion and no narration, no dialogue. They're genderless. They're ageless. They're just adorable little. Well, that sounds interesting. Rusty objects that I put together, and they're very evocative. Of I, I think they're very emotional. I'd actually originally made the short as a pro bono piece um, as part of a, a sizzle piece pitch for a non-binary celebrity, Jeffrey Marsh, who wrote uh, How to Be How to Be Me, How to Be You. Um, the, we were pitching, a, a, you know, an idea for a show up, up, about Jeffrey. So I got very educated in non-binary pronouns and also just sort of the, the appeal and Im- emotional impact of characters that do not have a gender, do not have an age, and do not have like a specific uh, race or 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 genus or anything that we are judging emotionally as opposed to immediately putting a stereotype on. And it's funny because the producer of that show said, you know, if you want to have narration in there, I can get you a couple of non-binary actors. And I'm like, no, the whole point is to not even suggest a gender for them. And I was inspired by that. I don't know if you I'm old enough to have seen this, but it was a movie called Silent Running. Uh, yeah. The guy who created the three robots, Huey, Louie, and Dewey, for that movie uh, was also approached by George to do the um, robots for Star Wars, but the guy declined because he... He just declined. He didn't want to be known for the guy who makes robot costumes. Um, and Huey, Dewey, and Louie, even though they've got male names, had no dialogue. And I thought they were just the most adorable robots because you got a whole personality from them. They're cheating at playing cards and showing each other their cards. Um, that that it, it's always stayed with me. So I actually created a, all these. Uh, I call it the uh, the Louisville Rust Parade because they're all rusty and they're kind of a parade of them. And I created them back in 2014 while I was working with found objects and had a few galleries going. Um, so I've repurposed them just in the last year. And so I have a two-minute short with them. And I've already, like I said, Jonas was just here and we shot a seven-minute short. Plus, he also lit the very opening scene for uh, the pilot for Return to Kellogg, the pilot. So we basically dusted off some of the sets from the movie. And I wrote an 11-minute uh, script, and now I'm going about getting the voices recorded for that. So, crazy, busy, super unemployed. <laughs> well, that's, hey, busy is a good thing. Busy is a good thing. Well, listen, um, it's been great having you on the show. Uh, I love talking about animation. I always was into that. You know, when I was a kid, I did animation, stop motion, and with my Super 8 camera and with video cameras so yeah it's a fascinating fascinating subject and sounds like you're doing a great job with your your feature so keep us posted um you know let us know how it goes and um we'll circle back and hopefully have you on the show again to talk uh, about your new projects great and if anybody has more questions about me there's a great article about return to kellogg on cartoon brew just came out a week ago so i'm pretty proud of that as well and where can people find you where can they find me yeah i mean if <laughs> are you an instagram person or uh do you have a website I, I am people can find me all you have to do is look up the word bowling for rhinos it's the word bowling b-o-w-l-i-n-g the number four and the word rhinos r-h-i-n-o-s i have a youtube channel a vimeo channel i have an instagram channel i guess it's not a channel is it i'm on linkedin but yeah i, I also do you know a little bit of commercial work here and there so um also if you're interested in my website it's bowlingforrhinos.com if you have any questions about animation, DM me. I am super accessible. I love to share information, and I, I, I actually had a you know an, an ask me anything on Reddit just for fun 
Um, and it was really great to connect with people individually who had questions about animation, stop motion, anything like that, because I, I, I knew almost nothing about how to, how to do stop motion when I started. And I know the feeling of having questions that you can't find answers to. So if anybody, if anybody's interested, I'm happy to answer any questions. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time and for being on the show. And uh, yeah, we'll circle back and talk to you again real soon. Great. A real pleasure. Thank you both. All right. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Filmmaker Mixer podcast, a podcast created and hosted by filmmakers Jeff Stolen and Andrew Lamping and produced by Melody Lopez. Our theme music was composed by a man looking for the perfect gumbo recipe, Stephen D. Bennett. Make sure to follow or subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to us on and stay tuned for future episodes.